0: I was practicing before rolex right Rolęch.
1: where did you where did you
0: practice how, how oh, would you know i just googled it
1: <laughs> germans also get it wrong no one gets it right
0: okay like
1: the thing is it's a polish surname uh, it's a polish name but it's written in german so german people can pronounce it and polish people can't read it it's amazing <laughs> best of both worlds that's it's queer actually, like, right there <laughs>
0: So our guest today is Felicia Roletschke, who is a transgender educator and activist from Germany. Her website, della la Transformal Tomorrow, is an incredible resource for both personal and academic writings on trans- on the transgender experience. It's personally been really inspiring to be able to have conversations with you and to see your work and to see your presence in the media as someone who is really entrenched in trans liberation in Germany. So thank you so much for joining us today, Felicia.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Awesome. So I guess, you are no, you're not really a newbie to this, though. I've seen that you've been in a few articles and interviews um, before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's dope. No, that's awesome. I just like sometimes we get people on who've never really been like um, visibly or publicly queer or like publicly talking about their experience in this way. And was that an easy thing for you to do to sort of take up a public space as a transgender woman?
1: Um yeah to a to degree like I had the advantage that like the thing I do for for a living I think I also did before sort of already involved public speaking like I feel like most people sort of are not comfortable in front of big crowds especially like talking in front of big crowds and I just always like did that and I always loved it I was like one of the theater kids except I never went to theater courses but I would have totally been one of the theater kids if I wouldn't have been like really awkward when I was younger. But I always loved speaking in front of crowds. Like I loved doing the crowd thing. So then over time, when my activism became um, a bit bigger over time, it just felt natural to do that.
0: Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about what the work you do and the workshops that you host?
1: The work I do is mostly a wide array of workshops and seminars for all kinds of groups, ranging from youth volunteer groups to political groups, all the way to companies and government stuff. And it's essentially basic anti-discrimination workshops, mostly surrounding trans issues, usually broadening a bit into queer topics in general, just like the whole not the whole LGBTQ stuff, you know. Um, and then at times it branches a bit further into um like anti-discrimination work. And I'm more specifically really involved with like medicine and law, like like it's in regards to trans issues. So I do a lot of workshops for um, doctors and law students. And I also work with the Schwules Museum here in Berlin, which is the oldest queer museum in the world that I've learned. It's really good. Um, and we do workshops and seminars and guided tours. Run my Instagram page with Transformational Tomorrow. And sort of, was from, from the very beginning, was trying to sort of create an online presence for it as well, sharing some of the things I do, some of the texts I write. And that's where this ended up.
0: And that's awesome so when you were getting into your activism work what really inspired you to take the step of uh, making that your full-time job your full-time profession
1: to be honest kind of kind of sad reason like <laughs> like at some point i was working at tutoring in like a little tutoring school and i really loved that job it was like the best thing like the, i studied, i t- taught math and physics to uh, high school students i was amazing and then at some point i had a new boss there and she was really transphobic and then she threw me out because she was like no nah, you can't, you can't be around kids. I was like, oh, oh okay, I, I guess I leave. And then I left and then I had nothing to do. And then all of a sudden I find myself like trying to find a job, to find some employment. And as a trans person, you sometimes just find yourself weirdly struggling in the uh, in the job market. And then after like a couple application like after a couple of interviews, you're like, something feels off. These, I'm really qualified for these jobs. And like without sounding like too arrogant or something, but like these are very simple jobs. Why am I never getting any of them? And then, after a while, I just like realized, like oh, I feel like there may have been some transphobia in this. Like a friend of mine told me, hey, you did you did these workshops once? Why don't why don't you just do that for a living? And then I, well, born out of necessity, like did a couple of workshops, and just fell in love with the, with the work. That's awesome. I mean, I think
0: there's always this interesting dichotomy about the, like, doing of the work, which often um, sometimes is appropriated by people who aren't actually the part of the community and, and like, kind of, like, saviorship complexes. And I think one of the interesting things that I noticed about, like, trans movements and trans activists, it's historically been like trans women, honestly, that have been entrenched in the fight towards, you know, creating more ac- access to equity basically. And I think it, it speaks a little bit to your point here about like the discrimination that trans women um, face. And I think what's often sort of forgotten by the queer community at large is that trans people have been at the forefront of our fight since the beginning, and we look at things like legalization of of gay marriage as a huge uh, like turning point for the queer community, um, when really trans legislation and 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 things that protect trans people is still really archaic and far behind in, in comparison to a lot of the sort of liberal liberalization of of the ways we see gayness in terms of sexuality. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit about sort of your commitment to getting into the legal system and getting into the, the ways in which the system itself is set up in Germany um, and, and talking about a little bit about the work that you do in that way.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I absolutely agree with like, the things you said. And like, for example, with with my activism here for much of the last years, I sort of felt like I didn't have much choice whether I wanted to do this or not. There was such grave injustice happening all the time towards trans people. And at the same time, we're being excluded from so many opportunities in, in the rest of the world, like in in, this, in the cis heteronormative normative rest of society. So that in the end, you, you sort of just end up doing activism out of, out of a mixture of frustration and hope and sort of being pushed into it and just hoping that maybe that can change some things for the better, but you don't really have another chance so you might as well do that. Like I have very conflicted feelings towards it because Trans people shouldn't feel shouldn't have to be the, the people like the, the group that really does a lot of this work. And it's just at times at times there is such a huge barrier in most of society that you can't possibly overcome, where you'll only see a couple of trans people actually like succeed in in the rest of the capitalist society because of like some wealth they may have had before they transitioned or something. But as a, as a trans person too quote unquote succeed in regular society. It's incredibly hard.
0: And and in terms of this idea of success, how do you measure it then for yourself in the work that you do?
1: Uh yeah. So so for me, my success really like I try to measure it with people I reach with my with my workshops. It sounded like it's really hard to quantify the things I do. For example, in um in my old hometown, I've, I've come from this, I've come from this very conservative town, this out of Germany. It's called Ochsenhausen. And it's like a really small Catholic village. And in that village, there is this school where I went to. And I know that nowadays, there are like I think three out trans teens. And I know that, like I, I directly know that some parts of their of their life are easier because of some of the things I did, which is like one of the very few times I can see like a very quantifiable effect that my work has. Because I talked to a bunch of teachers before they ever came out. And my father talked to a bunch of uh, parents and, and people in the town. I sort of knew that much of the village, uh, like there was some sort of positive priming before. Mm-hmm. And then I was in the newest ones and everyone saw it. And so there was like some positive mood that I feel like made it easier for these people to come out. But beyond that, it's just so hard to quantify, the, especially because I, I usually, I, I do my workshops and then I I usually don't even see these people again. And sometimes I hear like anecdotes of a, where they later on text me and were like, hey, I did this other project and then there was this trans person and thanks to your workshop, I knew how to not be a total dick about it. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Well, that's good. But like, you usually never hear these stories.
0: Totally. And, and have you ever had, like, have you had an experience during a workshop that is quite memorable to you that you would speak on, either positively or negatively, a reaction from a person or a conversation maybe? Plenty. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> how many hours you got? Um, <laughs> I remember we're doing one workshop in, in like one big museum here in Berlin. It's not the Schullis Museum, it's like a historical art museum where we did um, sex education based on on historical art, really fascinating. So anyway, during this workshop, um, there was there was one group from from a school for like dropouts and the teachers came before the workshop and were like, oh my God, they're so terrible. We wish you lots of luck. And then we did the workshop with the, with the group and they were amazing. They were like, pretty much all of them were queer and poor and like and like you could tell why they dropped out of school and you could tell that they're just they just were dicks yeah. and then we like scrapped the entire workshop concept and just talked talk to them and there was this one trans guy in the workshop I just remember that and, and he, he was like he told me he was so happy to like see a trans person do a thing and be older than 20 mm. because he was he was 14 at the time and he was struggling a lot and he was like How are you doing it you're like 25 like 25 is the thing, I can get to 25. And then like we went to the restroom together and I sort of stood guard in front of the restroom so that like no evil person from the museum could be like mean about it. And then I remember that that, that he left, it was super nice and like, I like cried for 20 minutes or something because it's just like, it's so frustrating at the same time because they were treated like, oh, these needs dropouts and problematic kids and everything. And it was, you could just tell they were a product of a society that just didn't care for them at all.
0: I can imagine a lot of your work is an emotional roller coaster, and and sort of harboring a lot of emotional space for other people as well through your, through sort of doing the things you do. It's interesting that you say that too, because I remember early on in my own transition and sort of coming to terms with my trans identity, what really was hard for me to imagine was like a life of being a trans adult, like being an adult, like older, you know, like my parents' age. Um, And it was only until I had access to queer community and spaces where there were more people engaging intentionally um, did I really finally see like, you know, we're actually uh, in a lot more places than we think. So it's really cool now too, to see um, the ways in which the older generation of trans people can be influencing the younger generation. And even if it's not even like an age gap that great, like you're talking about, um, it's so important. I guess, you know, this is the theme of role models here. I I think you know. I I believe you talked about this in an interview previously about sort of the power of having mainstream transgender icons in the media, right? The sort of like privilege of having having an image to look up to, but also the sort of poison of that image also being part of the sort of um, cis heteronormative idea of what's attractive and what is seen as um you know ideal and successful and beautiful in the sense of sort of western media
1: like I remember that was like big part at the museum that was so nice to see was just like reading stories of like elder trans people where you're like oh damn like you've been out for 40 years you did like a thing like this is one woman who founded a a, a club in Berlin. like it's not a club it's, like, it's called a club it's not a club it's like a cafe and it's it's been in like a meeting point for trans people for I think 30, 40 years, something. Just like reading her story, how she sort of started that cafe and how she wrote things for such a, a big part of her life. And you sort of just get the feeling, oh, there was a trans person who did a thing for 40 years. Yeah. And especially now, if you like, look at the world, you have big name actors who are trans and it's, it's, it's happening super slowly like for, for a recent thing, I researched like all trans politicians that are active in the world. And it's really not that many. It's it's not that many, but they are there. Like there are three ministers and they all started their term like sometime in the last three years or something. But they are there. And they're like, not even about like, they, they, don't, they don't do the trans thing as their ministry thing. But they are like, I think Sweden is, uh, is education and Belgium is finance and whatever that other person does it was like some some entirely different thing and you're like oh damn so yeah so no we can totally do that we we got that finance ministry covered that's that's our job now (laughs) take that
0: (laughs) no that's so true that's so true I'm I mean I'm really interested in this idea of like archiving queer experience too just obviously I think any um like historically oppressed group is it's you know, have have lost a lot of their their history just because of you know whitewashing or ciswashing or straight washing um, throughout history. And I think your 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 blog, your website, your work is also a form of sort of archiving a queer experience, archiving a trans experience, which um, sort of transcends the the time and space that we're in, right? It's like something that we can hold on to and, and keep on with us. Was that something that you uh, have in mind as as you're working is sort of to create an archive of your experience
1: absolutely i always wanted to keep it as an archive also for like just to see how stuff develops during transition and afterwards like i think i still think that one of the most interesting experiences you can have on the blog is reading the first and last article back to back because they're they're numbered by days yeah. and if you read the first article the language is heinous like i think there's even disclaimer in front of it where like by the way some of the following language was written with a rather poor understanding of queer issues. So take that with a grain of salt. I do not endorse my own language. And then you just like compare it to, the, to an article that I've written like three years later or four years later. And it's just like such a huge shift. in. I think to some degree in, in the language that I use and in, uh, the way, like what topics mean to me, what being trans means to me, what transitioning means to me always wanted to keep that like it was the idea from the very beginning to create that archive and to have it because so much of the history is just lost over time here in Berlin right right next to the museum right next to the museum is the location of Magnus Hirschfeld's institute for uh, sexual science that he founded in like 1918 or something wow like it's it's over 100 years ago was destroyed in 1933 by by the Nazis and they burned down all the books and we only have like a couple books and the couple books we have are like really good and we've just lost most of them because of some stupid nazis and it's just the same thing that happens in history time and time again and i feel like with the advent of the internet so much of that will change i think it's so much harder to control the spread of queer information in the internet you can see what like some of the countries trying to do like the, the queer ban or the gay ban so you can't talk about the gay shit. but like the internet is there you can always look at the gay shit. it's everywhere
0: I, I want to talk a little bit about um, now, like some of the more legislative um, work that you do with the state and start by asking you what role you think the state play should play in protecting trans lives.
1: <sighs> ah, complicated question. So in Germany, we have this uh, we have a transsexual law <laughs> um, that was established in 1981. Like to provide an opportunity for trans people to have a way to legally change their name and gender marker. And I was like, when it first came out, I was like, oh my God, we have this thing. And then you look at the thing and like, oh, it's... um." (laughs) So so ever from the beginning, there were just like too many problems with it. And over the time, some of the major problems fell. Until 2011, trans people were forcefully uh, sterilized in Germany. And only in 2011, after the European Court of Human Rights said like, Germany, not cool. What the are you doing there? It's not okay. And then, like a couple of years later, Germany dropped that part of the law, and some major parts of that law were dropped over time. The most egregious ones. But now, what trans people are left is a very strenuous, um, long-drawn-out process in which you have to pay between 1,000 and 8,000 euros. And then, as a part of that, it's, it's just like it judges you to which degree you can fulfill the stereotypical role. Of your gender, and mm. it's terrible.
0: Mm.
1: And beyond that, you have to take part in a wide wide array of personality tests. You have to take an IQ test, and you're like, "Come on, everyone, what 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 are we doing? Like, a house is this okay. What what is going on here?" And that law is awful. And then it just takes forever to go through with it. I started my court case in 2016 and finished it in early 2019. Mm-hmm for just like a mundane legal name change and an entirely easily reversible, non-inconsequential step as part of my transition. It literally only mattered for like a couple letters on my passport. And for that, you have to go through these humiliating and dehumanizing steps. It's just, Mm. it's beyond me. And then if that weren't bad enough, in 2019, there was an initiative to change it. And all that initiative was trying to do was to make it so that you would have uh, would have to ask the spouse in the final courtroom if the spouse is okay with it happening, and that was like the and then you just as a trans person just like feel like like what are we doing? How Absolutely. is this? How this country treats us? How is this what what we get as legal recognition? Mm. Mm. And it's the same thing with uh, with there's a, in Germany there's a, an option for a third gender marker on your passport like you can have a D, it stands for diverse. So that, that, that happened like in 2019 and everyone was like, oh my God, super cool, amazing. And all the, all the non-binary people were like, yay, look at that. I got my thing. And then they tried to do it and a bunch of intersex people got it because that was sort of the intention. And then as soon as the, as soon as the state realized like, oh my God, non-binary people do that, can't do that. Like it can't really exist outside the binary. You can do it if a doctor says it's okay, but everyone else, nope. And ever Mm. since then, non-binary people didn't have access to that.
0: And, you know, I think when we think about ways that we are trying to push that line a little bit, um, one of the ways I feel like is is inclusive language and trying to use language as a tool to create spaces of equity and to create, like, ways of communicating our experiences as queer people. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work that you do around inclusive language. um, How, first of all, you are also received when you do these um, do workshops on this
1: we do workshops on language with the museum like where we have lengthy workshops that explicitly focus on the relationship between language and power mm. especially in terms of marginalizations where we go into mechanisms that happen in language because like language that we use doesn't just have a a util- like a utility function it is also a sort of cultural tool mm. that we use to transfer um, or to to communicate our uh, well understanding of society in general, and you can see that with the, like like we we always in the workshop we go through a bunch of words that sort of change their meaning so drastically over time, because words are socially constructed. We don't find words in nature, and we use it to describe things, and then over time, you might use them to describe different things. And if you read a German text, or, or well, if I read a German text from 600 years ago, I understand, I understand shit because, like, all the words so make sense. Like, why, why are you speaking so weirdly? But that is the same language. I, I, I can see the words. I know what these words mean. which just like doesn't make sense. And at its core, because they reflect the society they're used by. And then we, if we take one step further and talk about, like, Gender neutral or gender inclusive language, it's essentially that. Like if, if a language itself is incredibly binary when it comes to gender, it isn't on accident, but it is an active choice of people who cre- who formed that language over hundreds of years for it to be this way. Because it doesn't have to be this way. Because if you look at other languages, there are a bunch of languages that don't really use gender, like the amount of gendered words that German does, and I think Portuguese does as well. And so to reverse that process actively is not just a sort of um, way to like do the right speech or something Mm. like do the correct speech what's accepted now, but it's an active pushback against systems of marginalization that have been hurting minorities for millennia. You you watch discussions on TV where there is your old, old white German person and they're like, oh, but then the language is gonna be different. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It will be. I, I don't like it how it is now. I want it to be different. And I'm not going to pretend like, oh, no, it's just just a very small thing. Like this. No, no. There are parts of this language that, and there are parts of this language that reinforce harmful things. Part of it is, for example, in German, that like every job description you have is the male form. So that when you, when you talk about a doctor, it immediately sounds like a man. Mm. because of course mm. who, could, who could imagine a woman doing a doctor's job of or something course. and the same then applies to a bunch of other things as well in the way language can perpetuate harmful stereotypes like there are a bunch of for example in German there are a bunch of um, words that are straight up remnants of the Nazi era because there is, for, there is a word called asozial in German and it's essentially it's like anti-social or it's like anti solidaric or something like that you say, oh, man, that person really sucked. That person was asozial. But originally, it was the term the Nazis coined to describe the people they would throw into concentration camps to kill. And then you sort of reflect like the language that we use. Like, oh, do we really want to call this person over there by the word the Nazis used and invented to describe the people they want to kill? Like, maybe not. Maybe that's not the word we use. You know what? Let's, let's, let's not use this word. Let's use something different. And language evolves. Language. Uh, improves, language changes, and I think it's so beautiful.
0: Absolutely, and it sort of mirrors our own societies and communities, right, like that's that's what it is, I think, to, to exist and to have purpose is to drive forward. You know, a, a question that we had from the club that came up quite a lot was um, sort of having to deal with the backlash of people not want, like, you know, not thinking or taking these things
1: seriously. We had, we had a really interesting conversation in Stuttgart once. Um, so we had this conversation with a the museum there, like the biggest art museum of the, of the district of Germany, it is in Southern district of Germany. And they were talking about like, hey, how can we like maybe be a bit more inclusive in our language and the on the website and everything. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, then we like, we discussed as a group and essentially it boiled down to like, oh, we should use more gender neutral versions like in all our texts and everything. And then one woman from the um, PR department I was like okay but if we do that people will write us angry emails and will write us angry Instagram comments so can we do that in a way that it doesn't happen and I was just like no like you can't and and that's the entire like the it's the, the entire thing there as soon as you're doing it in a way that you avoid the pushback you're not actually doing the thing
0: I love that, too, of like reframing it and thinking like if you're getting a reaction, then you're that's part of the result. Right. And like that's part of the 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 reason we do it. Um, And I think a lot of what you know, when you're talking about the sort of patience we need to have when thinking about what change looks like and thinking about what constant work looks like. You know, a lot of what we're talking about here is like habit changing in a lot of sense. And that even for ourselves is is work in progress and work that we, we constantly do. But I think your advice is really great. Um, And, you know, I think especially as being located in a business school with sort of arguably business leaders of tomorrow, as we like to say, there are often times where it feels quite isolating to be pursuing these 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 issues, alongside you know the, the the curriculum or the core of the the material that we're dealing with, but I think what's really intrinsic is the ways that it is all connected. I remember I had one um, professor who um, was really actively trying to use inclusive language, and it changed the dynamic of the conversation. I think it you can really see the ways in which even as you know not not engaging with queer people, but just engaging in a space that is one that people feel comfortable sharing and feel comfortable taking risks. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really powerful when people in positions of power, like a professor, takes the initiative to do that work.
1: Yeah, and like in Germany, there was, was an election a couple of months ago and like to have one of the parties in the, in the government, who's now part of the government coalition, be a party that like uses gender neutral language in everything, like everywhere, super essential. And then you have like these speeches in the German parliament you have high-ranking government officials doing that and you're like yeah it's it's getting there and that is like accelerating this conversation because well just like taking one step back like the 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 patient thing patience thing is like a really it's 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 hard because there are many people in the world who don't have the, the time for patience and patience is super hard like sort of a political political thing because at some point you gotta just change the thing and do it as fast as possible because people are suffering as a consequence of not changing the thing and if that dear listener sounds too like sounds too far removed from reality like oh i'm not using the language, that does that lead to people suffering yeah there are a couple steps in between but it's part of a system that leads to people suffering if you use a different word might not feel like you're changing like an individual's life somewhere but you're part of a process that destigmatizes and demarginalizes people who've been oppressed for centuries.
0: You know, I think abs- like having um intentionality behind your patients is really key. You know, I think one of the Ways that we like to operate as a club here at Nova is to, you know, operate with grace and operate through a, a lens of kindness and wanting wanting everyone to be on the same page, but also, you know, holding a line and and towing that line in a, in a way that is still, I think, seemingly aggressive on the end of people who aren't necessarily ready for these changes. But, you know, again, as, as you sort of reflecting on our end is, is already too slow for the change that it, that it should be. Um, and that's a delicate dance.
1: Yeah, it is the eternal struggle of reactivism, isn't it? You want to change things because things aren't perfect, and maybe in some cases, like the evolutionary approach, where sort of you build change upon change upon change, and sort of have the increments of change. Sometimes that just works, and in some other cases, you just gotta burn the entire thing down and build it from anew. We just we can't really forget it that like the the people who started much of this process weren't doing change in increments, but they were st- throwing stones at police and Maybe you don't need to throw a stone at the police right now. Maybe I don't. But it's just to sort of keep in mind that this, this very delicate cha- uh, dance that we do around fostering change in a bunch of different communities, maybe it works. But we also have to like remember, sometimes maybe it doesn't quite work. Sometimes you might have to go to a protest. Sometimes you might have to take more concrete action, do, do direct things. And just to keep in mind that it is always a co- it's always a connection of these two things. It is always a combination of doing very proactive work, very um, hands-on revolutionary change that needs to happen in some parts. And sometimes it's the sort of slow, slow evolution thing. Like for example, with we'll, to we'll take it to the, to the language thing. Yeah. <laughs> not, it, sounds, it sounds a bit pedantic, but like in like a bunch of places that I've worked before, it's just like at some point you still like take, take, take a pen and they just goes to the entire building and do the gendered version on like everything you find, and just sort of low key vandalize the building a bit, the university <laughs> building. But you're like, whatever. If you're you doing the vandalism, yeah, actually <laughs> incriminating myself on Portuguese <laughs> podcast, it's okay. German <laughs> police can't catch me here. Um, but like you do, you do the little thing just as like make it like to to for people to be easier to spot it. And then at the same time, you're also talking to the university administration, be like, hey, by the way, if we, if we print these signs next time, why not put a little gendered version there? And then this yeah. is probably the idea. But also, if you're a trans person in a country that like doesn't legally recognize you, faking your ID because you need it to survive in everyday context might be the better solution for you to wait 20 years until you have some sort of legal recognition. So, so like understanding that we we want to work in the system, we want to work with the system to some degree, but also sometimes you can't. sometimes the slow evolutionary change doesn't work. It used to um, do workshops at like a medicine university here. And there was this one lecture by this professor and it was bad. <laughs> like he didn't, didn't talk nicely about trans people, did he? So mm. there we like did both things like we would print flyers and like throw the flyers in front of the, the the lecture hall and then i would go to him to his office and be like yeah terrible how much backlash you get for this thing right so like maybe we can like just work out a like nice good solution how we can maybe implement another speaker to that to that lecture you do oh sir i i don't know what to do if only we could change the lecture just a tiny bit maybe it would make these people happy and all of a sudden lecture changed a bit we did, we did get lecture changed it's not as bad anymore. Like the part about trans issues, he like leaps to another professor now.
0: It's good. That's, that's awesome. You know, change yeah. comes in all shapes and forms, I guess, you know? Yeah. And the ways that we learn to negotiate those things too, right, we have to be a little bit more in, it, like clever about how we're going to go about this activism or whatever to, to really get to the point of what we're trying to, trying to achieve.
1: Yeah, and it's imminent. Like every year he could teach his old thing, yeah. he would like create a generation of medical professionals that would hold very bad views about being trans.
0: Uh, one of the things that we love to ask our guests is, as, as a queer person, who are some queer people that you look up to that we could also potentially um, research and see for ourselves?
1: I guess I'm a huge fan of ContraPoints to some degree. Like it just, I, I just really like that person. Yeah. Like yeah. the style. Yeah. Um, like ContraPoints and Philosophy Tube are just like two people that I've always sort of look up, looked up to mm-hmm. and that I find super enjoyable. There are a bunch of like I read I read this book of Sean Shan Sean, Sean Oh shit, I don't know how to pronounce her name. She's like she wrote like a book, The Transgender Issue. And that oh, was yeah. really good. And that and that was amazing. That book, really good. And I have a couple of queer role models here that sort of in, like inspire me a lot. Like there, there is an author in Germany, a trans woman. She's also called Talisha, because that's apparently like a common name for German trans women um is it? <laughs> it, it is it That's actually is yeah why do you is. think that is oh i i know why that is oh <laughs> like i derived my name like when i when to use the new name i sort of derived it from like a very common male name in german german that i got had before okay. that like so many people have and oh. i just sort of, sort of use that to like find a name i was comfortable with Interesting. and like i don't want to overstep any boundaries towards all the other felicia's in germany but I feel like some of them might have had the same story because <laughs> it's just too, too much of a coincidence for like not to be like some sort of pattern. Anyway, um, so she yeah. writes books mm. and she's she's like in her 40s. I, I was in a panel discussion with her and she's like the older, mature and like more intense version of myself. It's, it's so cool because that she's like, sick. she like doesn't, doesn't take much shit from like mm. the world. Mm. And her Twitter takes are way harder than anything I would ever write. It's just like yeah, you tell him. That's um, <laughs> just like I I could I, I wouldn't I wouldn't write that but now as you wrote it like, damn like yeah 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 that that is true. Also, old trans people. Yes. It's my thing.
0: Um. So uh, just to we can probably wrap the conversation now. I won't take up too much more of your time. There's a few questions. I can't,
1: I'm I'm not good at wrapping
0: rapping oh my, honestly oh you didn't you, practice
1: oh well you made something you went something entirely different yeah yeah we can, <laughs> rap, yeah, we rap. can do that
0: <laughs> what is a practice of like self-care that you do um to keep yourself in a positive space that you can share on I, the
1: podcast yes I, I can do well whoa I, I i mean i do that as well we are, we are a sex positive podcast as well <laughs> of course
0: thank you and good night <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, do have, I do have another thing that is yeah. that is more PG here. I write a Dungeons & Dragons world and I spend a lot of time writing that world and it just like takes me somewhere else. And every other week we have a session for five or six hours where we play. Yeah. And because the world I have created over the last years is very, very queer. Yeah. there There is there is no queer phobia. People are not, not bitchy about queer things and a bunch of queer people just strive and do cool shit. Um, I can create this world, I can create these characters, and I can have people experience that world. That is self-care.
0: Thank you so much, again, for joining us on this podcast. It's been really special to have you here. Um, We'll be sharing all of the links we can to your website, as well as your Instagram, um, and other works that you've done uh with this podcast so take a look at that if you're interested um Felicia thanks so much um it's really cool to be able to talk to another trans person who's doing the work who's getting shit done who's unapologetic about who they are and and the things they do and the impact that they make Um, and as a club and for myself just thank you so much for the work you do
1: thank you so much for having me this was really fun I enjoyed this a lot and yeah thank you so much for listening